So our scripture reading is Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all live, every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are gathered here this morning in the name of your son, Jesus. And we have just heard your word. And our prayer now is that as we consider your word together, you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we ask that as we hear this word, you would build us up in faith, in hope, in love, and conform us to the image of your Son by your Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're beginning a new series in the book of Exodus. And Exodus is a long book. It's 40 chapters. So we may be in Exodus for a little while. Exodus is the second book of the Bible and the second book of the books of Moses. And we often think of these books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, as very distinct separate books. But we need to remember that Exodus is really volume two or chapter two of a single book, which is Torah, instruction. 
These are the books of Moses, the book of Moses, Torah instruction. It was Torah instruction for the people of Israel, but it's also Torah for us. It's instruction for us. And as we begin this new series in Exodus, let's remember what the Apostle Paul says to us believers, to the church. This is Romans 15, verse 4. Whatever was written in former days, whatever was written in the book of Exodus, was written for our instruction. It's Torah. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And we need to remember that week by week as we return to this book of Exodus. It was written for our instruction. It was written for our encouragement that we may have hope. And in this sermon this morning, I want to first introduce the book to us very briefly. And then we'll consider the chapter that we just read, Exodus chapter 1. Now, I mentioned that Exodus belongs to the book of Moses. Moses wrote Exodus. And we learn something of Moses in the book of Exodus. We'll be introduced to him next week. And Moses was somebody who was uniquely called by God as one who would speak the word of God. And as as we read through not just Exodus, but all of Torah, we see there Moses is the one who is declaring the word of the Lord. He's speaking the word of the Lord. Now Moses was also somebody who was well-trained, well-educated, We'll see this next week. He was raised as a prince of Egypt. And Stephen in Acts chapter 7 says that he was, he was well educated. He, he learned the wisdom of the Egyptians. And so here is someone who is well educated and someone who is uniquely called by God to speak the word of God and to write the word of God. And so as we word of God, written by the hand of Moses. Now, Exodus is 40 chapters, and it's helpful just to have a very brief sense of the overall structure of the book. And sometimes, you know, you get, you get caught in the, the details of the trees, but you need to remember the forest that you're in. This is the forest of Exodus. And there are various ways that we could consider just the overall structure of Exodus, but one way we can think about it is in terms of geography. So the book begins in Egypt. Then it moves to the wilderness, and then it ends at Mount Sinai. And we can see key themes in the book of Exodus as we consider those places. So first, in Egypt, that's where the book begins. That's chapters 1 to 13. And there we see in that account God's judgment on the Egyptians for their oppression, God's deliverance of the people of Israel, his salvation. And we see there that God is a God of salvation and a God of judgment. He provides for them in the wilderness. He protects them in the wilderness. He guides them and leads them in the wilderness. And there we see a God who is with his people, who provides for his people, who protects his people, who leads his people. And then the second half of the book, chapter 19 to 40, the people are at Sinai, at Mount Sinai. And there they received the gift of the law. They enter into a covenant with God through Moses. And... And so those are the themes of that second half of the book at Sinai, the gift of the law and God's tabernacle. And when we step back and just look at these key themes, we see there God is a God of salvation. God is a God who goes with his people. He's present. And God is a God who gives the people 
his people, his law, his word. And therefore, we know from the book of Exodus that as God's redeemed people, his saved people, we are those who are marked out, we're set apart, we're holy, and we're marked out by right living, those who keep the commandments of God. And we're marked out by right worship. And it's good for us just to keep in mind that the tabernacle is a major theme in the book of Exodus. Well, that lives in righteousness and holiness before God, but it's a people who worship God. And so that's us too. We're marked by right living. We're marked by right worship. And we also need to keep in mind as we work our way through Exodus, what our Lord Jesus revealed to his disciples on the day of his resurrection and in the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. He went through the scriptures with his disciples, showing them everything that was written about him in Moses, in the prophets, and in the, in the Psalms. And so we need to have our eyes open for the Lord Jesus in this book too. And we'll find that as we read through this book, he is the one who was present there in the burning bush. He is the Passover lamb. He is the manna in the wilderness. He is the rock from which the people drink. He is the one who gives law, who keeps law, who gives covenant, who makes covenant. He is the true tabernacle. And so we're going to keep our eyes open for Christ. We learn about him. We will know him better, having gone through Exodus. So that's just a brief overview. Now let's consider chapter 1. We see here there's three sections in this chapter, verses 1 to 7, verses 8 to 14, and verses 15 to 22. In verses 1 to 7, we see there a reminder of God's covenant faithfulness to Abraham and his descendants. We're reminded of that first. God's covenant, his promise, and he's keeping his promise. And it's a reminder to us as we work through this book, and it's a reminder to us in our day-to-day life, we see everything, our circumstances, our trials, our tribulations, our joys, our successes, in the light of God's covenant faithfulness. And then in verses 8 to 14, we see the oppression of God's people. Now, this oppression doesn't contradict God's covenant faithfulness. God warned Abraham. He warned Isaac and Jacob that their descendants would suffer in a foreign land. But God would judge that nation. God would bring them out and bring them back to the land. So, yes, we we are confronted right away with the oppression of God's people. And we're reminded that we are not promised to escape oppression. We will experience affliction. But that doesn't contradict God's covenant faithfulness. He warns us that he will lead us through that. Uh, But in that, he blesses us. He'll deliver us. And then in verses 15 to 22, we see our response to this. In the light of God's covenant faithfulness, in the light of oppression and affliction, how do we respond? Simply put, the midwives show us, fear God. Fear God. Keep his word. And sometimes that means disobeying the word of the king. So let's begin then in verses 1 to 7. And Exodus begins with a census. It's a very simple census. These are the sons of Jacob that came to Egypt. But it's a census that reminds us of God's promise to Abraham. Here we're reminded these are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And... That census at the beginning of Exodus forms a link to Genesis. And we're reminded we can't just jump into Exodus and know nothing about Genesis. And in fact, the better we know Genesis, the better we'll appreciate and understand the book of Exodus. And so it begins with this reminder. These are the descendants of Abraham. And the history that you're about to read concerns them. 
And even if you look at Genesis, yes, Genesis is such a foundational, important book. We see there God's word revealing to us the creation, the fall, the rise of civilizations. But as you think of it, as you look at Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, there's only two chapters on creation. There's one chapter on the fall. There's a few chapters on the rise of civilization. But then in chapter 12, we meet Abraham, and the narrative pace slows down, and the rest of the book concerns Abraham and his descendants. Two chapters on creation, one chapter on the fall. And then we have chapters 12 to 50, 39 chapters on Abraham and his descendants. That means Abraham and his descendants are important. And it tells us that what God is doing in history and where God is going to make himself known is through Abraham and his descendants. And Exodus begins with that reminder. Abraham and his descendants and God's promise to Abraham. Now we first hear this promise in Genesis chapter 12. It's good to to hear it again, to remember what we read there. So Genesis 12 verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, all, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promises Abraham land. God promises Abraham descendants and so many descendants that he will be a great nation. And he promises Abraham that through you, through your family, through your descendants, I'm going to bless all the families on earth. Now, we saw the nature of that blessing at the end of Genesis. Joseph goes to Egypt and he blesses Egypt. He provides for Egypt. Egypt is prosperous because Joseph comes. It's a blessing to the nations. Now, Exodus begins with that reminder. God's promise to Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham. As we read on in Genesis, we come to Genesis 15, and there's a beautiful and profound account of God entering into a covenant with Abraham. And you can go and read that in your own time. But in the ancient world, covenants were often cut. You entered into a covenant by cutting up animals, and you would separate them. And then each party would pass through those severed animals. That's why it was called cutting a covenant. And a covenant is a relationship of mutual belonging. It's not just setting some terms of, okay, I'll do this and you do that. It's we now belong to one another. That's why marriage is a covenant. In marriage, the husband and the wife say to one another, I am yours, you are mine. And by God entering into a covenant with Abraham, he's saying, Abraham, I am your God and you are mine. I am yours and you are mine. And so we will hear God named throughout the book of Exodus as the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. He's their God. He belongs to them. But what we read there is God taking Abraham out at night, showing him the night sky, saying, look at all the stars. You can't even count them. That will be your descendants. I'm going to make you great. You'll have many, many descendants. And then Abraham falls into a deep sleep. And then only God passes through the animals. In other words, God is the one who will keep the covenant. It depends on him. Abraham doesn't pass through the animals. And so we know from that point on, what is going to happen from here on in is depends on God. 
It all depends on God. He's the one that will keep the covenant. But as Abram is in that deep sleep, and as God enters into this covenant with him, he hears this from the Lord. Then the Lord said to Abram, this is Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God tells Abraham, your descendants are going to a foreign land. That's Egypt. They are going to suffer there. They will be afflicted there. They will be slaves for 100 years. God tells Abraham that in advance. And then he says in verse 14, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. When God enters into a covenant with Abraham, he warns him, Your descendants will suffer. Your descendants will be slaved. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But I'm going to judge that nation. And I'm going to bring you out with great possessions. Now we've already heard that in Genesis. And so when we come to Exodus and we hear that the people are afflicted, we know what God has already said. What God has already promised. And this promise to Abraham is repeated again and again in Genesis. It's repeated to his son Isaac. It's repeated to his son Jacob. And so when we come to Exodus, we read, first of all, God is keeping his promise. He said, I will make you great. I will give you many descendants. And Exodus begins with this statement. That yes, Joseph died in verse 7. Exodus 1 verse 7. And all his brothers and all that generation. Joseph died, that generation died. That doesn't mean an end to the promise. Because in the next verse we read, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied, they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. God is keeping his promise to Abraham. His descendants are flourishing. His descendants are growing. And yet we know his warning to Abraham, but they will be afflicted. They will be oppressed. And so when we come to verse 8 in chapter 1, it's not a surprise. We've been expecting this. We've been waiting for this. We know that when Israel goes to this foreign land, that this is coming. And so what we read in Exodus 8 and following, uh, verse 8 and following, is the fulfillment of God's word. He's keeping his word. He said this would happen, and now it's happening. So Genesis gives us that prophetic word. It's going to happen. But Genesis also gives us another lens through which to view what is happening in Exodus. Uh, Yes, there's a prophetic word in Genesis, but there's also, and I'll use this kind of fancy word, there's also an apocalyptic perspective that comes from Genesis. And what I mean by that is what God says to the serpent in Genesis 3, verse 15. You'll remember that account in the fall of Adam and Eve. And then God says to the serpent in verse 15, chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what God is revealing to us there is that the subsequent history of humankind is going to be a spiritual conflict between the serpent and his offspring and the woman and her offspring. Which means, yes, things are going to be playing out in history on the ground. But know that behind that, there's a spiritual conflict. It's the serpent. Now, just in your own mind's eye, 
as you think of the images that you know of Pharaoh, what do you notice about Pharaoh's headdress? What do you see there? Serpent? Yeah. Yeah. And in other parts of Scripture, in the Psalms and the Prophets, Egypt's often referred to as Rahab, which is a sea serpent. Egypt, the sea serpent. So we're also mindful as we go through Exodus, there's a spiritual conflict here. This is the conflict of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the serpent is going to attack Abraham and his seed, God's people. And so that's what we see happening in Exodus. And when we come to Exodus 1 verse 8, we see there what is typical of the serpent's enmity for the people of God. This is a typical expression of it. What we see Pharaoh do and the Egyptians do, we're going to see that repeated again and again because it's the same serpent at work. And so we're going to look at at what we read here through that lens. God's promises, God's faithfulness, but also knowing that here we see the enmity of the serpent. And verse 8 is significant. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now that's key. He did not know Joseph. He did not know the God of Joseph, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who promised to keep that people and bless them and cause them to multiply and grow and through them be a blessing. He did not know the blessing that Abraham and his descendants had brought to Egypt. Now, when it says he did not know, it doesn't mean that he forgot. It doesn't mean all of a sudden there was no memory of Joseph and nobody knew anything about Joseph or Jacob or the descendants of Abraham. That's not what that means. What that means is there arose a new king who was now ignorant of Joseph. He was ignoring Joseph. He was ignoring the God of Joseph. He was rejecting the God of Joseph. It's not that he forgot. This is a willful ignorance, a willful rejection. And here we see a warning. Because we see this happening in our own society and culture. There are now rulers who don't know Christ and his blessing and the blessing that his people bring. It doesn't mean they've forgotten. It means they're willfully rejecting it, willfully ignorant of it. And not only are they willfully ignorant, but what often happens is the past gets recast. And notice that not knowing Joseph soon turns into propaganda against Joseph. The very next verse, verse 9. And he said to his people, he says this to the other Egyptians. Now, note what this is. This is political propaganda. He is telling the people, the Egyptians, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Now, are the Egyptians in their day-to-day lives concerned about this? Not necessarily, but now they're being told this by the king. Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, the propaganda works. It's effective because we read in verse 12, the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And here's where we need wisdom and we need to recognize the power of political propaganda. 
Now, we see one example of this even in the rhetoric that you're hearing from various levels of government and in the media about the threat of the unvaccinated. That's not based on any kind of empirical evidence. That's not rational. But it's a political message. And people believe it. So people are afraid of the unvaccinated. But there's a deeper issue and a deeper concern that we should have as believers. Because it's not just that particular issue. And that has to do with vaccination. There's a deeper issue and concern where we are hearing just steadily the drip, drip, drip. And it's becoming more overt and more explicit. The view that Christianity, Christians, they are a threat to our, our vision of social justice, our vision of progress. Christianity is a threat to that now. And people are hearing that. And then we, we're told that we need to associate Christianity with things like patriarchy, with things like white supremacy. These are all of a whole. I, I, I noted this. Last week, some of us were out uh, at the corner of uh, Kiel and, and Bloor, just holding signs, protesting abortion, but silently, just holding out signs as people went by. And some people uh, honked and gave us a thumbs up. That was encouraging. Other people honked and raised a different digit, and that was what it was. But the odd person would roll down a window and say something. And you know what the, the, the message was? Always, consistently? Look at you white men saying this. You're a white man. How dare you give this message? And one guy stopped the light and he's like, it's all white men. That's all that you need to, that, that says everything. You're white men. And I'm standing here and, okay, there was a couple of older white guys beside me. But then I look to my right and seven of the ten people to my right are women. And not all white. So it doesn't matter what is right in front of you. That's the message. That's the propaganda. You're all white men. Well, we're not. You can see that. doesn't matter. So we see the nature of this political propaganda. And, there, and increasingly, be in dread. Be in dread. This is a threat. It's a threat to our nation. It's a threat to our society. Now, Pharaoh said this. Lest they multiply. This is the purpose. We don't want them to multiply. What's the result? Verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and they spread abroad. Notice that. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Now we see this pattern again and again in the history of God's people. The more God's people are oppressed, the more they strengthen, the more they increase. Yeah. Tertullian knew this in the early church. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more the Roman Empire persecutes the church, the more it grows. The Chinese government is discovering this. The more it persecutes the church, the stronger it gets, the more it grows. And we can have confidence that that will be the case in Canada. The greater the hostility, the greater the hatred, the greater the the opposition, the stronger the, the church is going to be. Now, God promised this to his people. Again, none of this is a surprise. He already told them this is how it was going to be. He told them, yes, Abraham, your people are going to suffer. They will be afflicted. They'll be slaves. But this isn't going to mean the end of my promises. This is no threat to my promise. Whatever Pharaoh thinks he's going to accomplish, that does not affect what I'm accomplishing. And it's significant what 
God says to Jacob, right at the end of Genesis, chapter 46, God spoke to Israel, to Jacob, in visions at night, and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Don't be afraid to go to Egypt, because it's there that I'm going to make you a great nation. And he made them a great nation precisely in the midst of that affliction, in the midst of that suffering. And so that pattern is repeated again and again, and we can take confidence that it will happen among us too. Not because of anything we're doing, because of God's word and his promise. Remember what our Lord Jesus said. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is going to build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is building it. He will do it. And Joseph, at the end of his life, he knew what Abraham had told him. He knew what Jacob had told him. Abraham had warned his his sons, you will suffer in Egypt. He reassured Jacob, go to Egypt anyway. I will make you a great nation there. But remember, he also promised Abraham, I will judge that nation and I will bring you up. And so Joseph, in his dying words to his sons, says to them, I'm about to die. This is the last chapter of Genesis. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. God will visit you. He will deliver you. And then Joseph says, when he delivers you, take my bones with you. And we get that detail in the Exodus. The bones of Joseph come out. Now let's remember, it was 400 years of affliction. We've entered, it's just been a short time for us in our experience. 400 years for Israel, but... At no point during that time was God's purpose thwarted or was his word proved false. God keeps his promises. He keeps his word. And so for us, as we enter into a time of increasing hostility, we trust God's word. He keeps his word. He will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now in the remaining verses, chapter, or verses 15 to 22... We see the response of God's people. The slavery doesn't work. Pharaoh sees that. And then the mask is really lifted, and Pharaoh reveals himself to be an instrument of the serpent because his next policy is the slaughter of innocents, the murder of infants. Now, a nation that rejects Christ that rejects his word, his promises, his blessing will soon be marked by this the murder of infants. And we see that around us. We've been marked by that for some time in the West, for some time in Canada, in the United States. That reveals actually how far gone our nation already is. So the enmity of the serpent, that is revealed by the murder of innocence. And so our nation murders the child in the womb. And it's perverted what Pharaoh does here because he orders the midwives to kill the children. Now a midwife's entire work and occupation is to bring life into the world. And here the Pharaoh says, no, you kill. You kill the sons. Even in in Pharaoh's articulation of the decree, we see there 
It doesn't just say kill the fetus. It doesn't just say kill the baby or kill the boy, but the sons, the sons. Kill the sons. We're just reminded of, of who we are. We're not just a human being. We're a son. We're a brother. We're a sister. We're mothers. We're fathers. But here Pharaoh commands those who are meant to bring life into the world to take life. And we see that subtle corruption even in our own society where now we have doctors serving as executionists. That's perverted. That a doctor who swears an oath to do no harm now provides lethal injections for people. Well, that's the Pharaoh's policy. That's his plan. But, verse 17, but, the midwives feared God. That's all we need to know about them. They feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now notice this, Pharaoh is concerned about the sons. He's worried about the sons. We've got to do something about the Hebrew sons. Actually, what he needs to be worried about is the Hebrew daughters. They're the ones that are going to thwart his attempts to crush the people of Israel. And not just these Hebrew midwives, but in the next chapter, again, it's going to be Moses' mother, Moses' sister, the princess of Egypt. They're the ones through whom God is going to carry out his purposes. Now, the midwives feared God, and so they didn't do what the king asked. Simply put, they didn't have the Ten Commandments yet. They didn't have God's covenant with Moses yet. They knew Genesis 9. God had commanded Noah when he came out of the ark, in this world that I'm leading you into, you shall not murder. You shall not shed innocent blood. Very clear. They knew that. They feared God. They kept his word. And so they are going to obey God. And we're reminded here too of our calling as Christians, as believers, as those who fear God. If any governing authority calls on us to do what God forbids, we disobey. We disobey. If he calls, uh, if governments call us uh, to Uh, To not do what God commands, we disobey. Now, the midwives feared God, and God blessed them because of it. He dealt well with them. We see this in his blessing of children, his blessing on families. They grow, they increase. He also dealt well with the people. The people themselves are blessed by this. They, They grow, they increase. When we're courageous, when we take a stand, when we obey God rather than the king... We are blessed, but others are blessed too. All of Israel is blessed. And they're named. We know them. Shifra, Pua. What's Pharaoh's name? Don't know. God doesn't name them. We don't know who that is. We know who the midwives are. Their names are preserved. We know them. And so we're reminded that in a time of increased affliction, oppression... We are those who fear God. We keep his word. We obey him. 
Now, sometimes, like in the case of these Hebrew midwives or the case of Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there are moments of a very obvious conflict where this brings us into obvious conflict. Usually, it's just a matter of faithfully, day by day, obeying Christ, following him, the fear of the Lord. And it's a reminder to us in our day-to-day lives, in the small things, in the quiet things, in the hidden things, we are being faithful. We fear God. We obey his word. Men, we want to grow to be men who are being conformed to the image of Christ. We're called to be disciplined. We want to be men of prayer. We want to be men committed to the word. We don't want to be lazy. We're not going to be spending our time, you know, playing video games or drinking beer or watching porn. If that happens, if there's conflict, you're done because you're out of shape spiritually. The Hebrew midwives feared God. They were faithful. They lived a life of faithful obedience, which meant when the, when the crisis came, they were ready. They were prepared. And so for us, we live in the fear of the Lord. And just those simple spiritual disciplines, those simple acts of obedience, just living in faithfulness in the fear of the Lord in our families, in our workplaces, in our church, in our social engagements, we're faithful. We obey God's word. But in that, we are, we are being strengthened. We're being trained so that when the test comes, we're ready. We're ready. Now, we do so in the same knowledge as these Hebrew midwives, as the people of Israel. They knew God's promises. We know God's promises. We do so knowing that Christ will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against us because Christ is at work. Christ has conquered And Sunday by Sunday, we come to the Lord's table, and I'm reminded of what David says in Psalm 23, that our Lord prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And whatever's going on out there, Sunday by Sunday, we gather here, and we come to this table in the presence of our enemies. And this is a covenant meal, and in this meal, we renew the covenant. God is faithful. God keeps his word, and we come to this meal, and we recognize we've fallen short. But in this meal, we renew the covenant. We say, yes, we want to live in the fear of the Lord. We recognize those areas where we've compromised or where we have disobeyed God's word. We repent of those things. We renew our commitment to follow him, our commitment to live in the fear of the Lord. But also this meal is a means of grace to us. It's communion with Christ. Sunday by Sunday, we come here and we we know in this table that our Lord is with us and he goes with us. And he is building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. So let's come to the Lord's table now, renewing our covenant commitment to love and serve him. Let's come to the Lord's table now, knowing that in this meal, we are assured of his communion with us. And that he is going to lead us through this time. And just as Joseph was confident, the Lord will visit you. He will deliver you. So we know that the Lord will visit us. And he will deliver us.